Bibles, if you would, to 1 Peter chapter 4. We resume our study of 1 Peter that we left off for our Advent series. If you're using your pew Bibles, you'll find it to be on page 1,214. And as we pick up our study of 1 Peter, I want you to remind you what Peter's readers were experiencing that Peter is seeking to address in his letters. These early Christians in Asia Minor had come to Jesus Christ and after having come to Jesus Christ, they found that life was difficult for them. They were experiencing uh, harassment. There's no evidence during this time period of empire-wide persecution that's systematic throughout the empire, but still they were being mistreated. They were being slandered as evildoers. They were being maligned. They were being misrepresented by those who misunderstood the message of Jesus Christ. Wasn't Jesus the Messiah? Weren't they doing what was pleasing and good and right in God's sight? If so, how could they be suffering? How did they account for this stiff opposition that they were experiencing? They were bewildered, and if nothing else, they were disheartened. Life in Christ was not as easy as they had hoped it might be, and their faith was being shaken as it was being attacked. So Peter writes to encourage them, and he's encouraged them throughout this entire epistle. And today, as we see in this passage, he is continuing to encourage them. And he says, arm yourselves with insight. Arm yourselves with the knowledge of Jesus Christ. Throughout this letter, he's been reminding us that we reside in this world as strangers and aliens. This is not our home. And that is partly the reason that we suffer as we do. We're not there yet, although we are on the way. You're on the road that you are on Peter has reminded his readers and us. By God's grace, and though it is difficult, it leads to a glorious end. Therefore, it is worth persevering, whatever suffering, whatever difficulties and hardships and challenges we experience along the way. So see how Peter encourages his readers in this particular passage as we read 1 Peter chapter 4, verses 1 through 7. Therefore, since Christ has suffered in the flesh... Arm yourselves also with the same purpose, because he who has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin, so as to live the rest of the time in the flesh, no longer for the lust of men, but for the will of God. For the time already past is sufficient for you to have carried out the desires of the Gentiles, having pursued a course of sensuality, lusts, drunkenness, carousing, drinking parties, and abominable idolatries. In all this, they are surprised that you do not run with them into the same excesses of dissipation, and they malign you. But they will give an account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. For the gospel has for this purpose been preached even to those who are dead, that though they are judged in the flesh as men, they may live in the spirit according to the will of God. The end of all things is near. Therefore, be of sound judgment and sober spirit for the purpose of prayer. This is God's word. Let us ask his blessing. Our Heavenly Fathers, we come to you as we resume our study. Father, we need again your Holy Spirit to write these things on our hearts, to cause us to be sober, to help us, give us insight that we need from Jesus Christ himself in order that we might know what to expect in our lives as Christians, that we might know 
be able to account for the things that we are experiencing, even in this life. Father, you know the difficulties we face. We pray, Father, that you administer this word to our hearts. In Jesus' name, amen. If you have ever walked into the middle of a conversation, you know that, uh, how important context can be. Sometimes you walk up to a group of people and you hear uh, somebody say something. And you cannot believe what you just heard. You're shocked and appalled that they would say such a thing. And since you just walked into the conversation, the group of people sort of sees the shock, the shocked look on your face. And they sort of begin to chuckle to themselves because they see how you have misunderstood. And sure enough, there's an explanation, and they walk you through it, uh, what the conversation has been about. And then you find yourself saying, oh, okay, I understand. Now, I thought you were saying this, which was quite confusing. But now that I understand, I, I see what you were uh, trying to say there. Context is really important. Peter's readers felt a little bit like in their Christian lives, like they had walked into the middle of a conversation as Christians. Only rather than simply misunderstanding and being shocked and appalled, they were suffering. And they were being bewildered and confused. They found their experience as Christians disheartening and frustrating. As I said earlier, they had come to Jesus Christ and wasn't he the Messiah? Isn't God sovereign and able to look after him? Isn't he our Heavenly Father? And if so, why are we grieved by various trials? Why are we being slandered and opposed as God's people? God surely can do something about it, can't he? Aren't we seeking to please the Lord and do what is right in his sight? Why is he allowing us to go through this? Uh, in your life as a Christian, you will come to those points of suffering in your life where you will be confused. Where is the Lord in all of this? And it is especially difficult at times when the suffering, the difficulty that we are encountering is a direct result of our faith, of trying to please the Lord. In this case, they had quit their life of sensuality, lust, and drunkenness, and carousing, but now they're being slandered. They're being opposed. For seeking to honor the Lord, they are not admired and appreciated. They are slandered and maligned and mocked. And it has been uh, very difficult for them. Peter's readers desperately needed a context to explain their ex current experience as Christians. And Peter is writing to them to say there is a context, and the context is Christ himself. Christ suffered in his earthly life, and he suffered for you. Jesus Christ came into the world, not full of glory, not full of a life of ease, but he came as the suffering servant. And he is the mold which is giving your life its shape. If you feel sometimes like a suffering servant, it is because you are being conformed and shaped into the likeness of the one who is the suffering servant. Jesus Christ is the context that we need in order to make sense of our sufferings. Our lives are following the same pattern that Christ's life followed. For him, it was first suffering and humiliation, and only afterwards did he arise and enter into glory. And it is the same pattern for us. In Romans 8, verse 17, Peter says, We are heirs. Wonderful thing to be heirs of the world to come and all of God's promises. He goes on, provided we suffer with him, 
in order that we might also be glorified with him later. And again, in 2 Timothy 2, verse 12, if we endure with Christ, we will also reign with him. Christ, it was, his robe was first suffering and then glory. And as Christians, we need to know that as we, our lives are conformed to Christ, as we are united to him, our lives will take on that same shape. First, it is a path of suffering in which we are grieved in various trials and we find things to be difficult. But just as with Christ, it leads to a glorious end, resurrection and life with God in the new world without sin and without misery. We need the context of Jesus Christ in order to make sense of our lives as Christians. And in a sense, what Peter is saying very simply in these verses is, if you want to know what it, what it will be like to be a Christian, look to Jesus Christ himself. Let him be your guide, and let him set your expectations for what life with him will be like. As it was for him in the world, so it will be, to a greater or lesser extent, for you as his people in the world. Today we're going to look at the suffering, which leads us to be through with sin. We're going to look at the slander that being through with sin sometimes provokes. And finally, the sober perspective that enables us to persevere, clinging to Christ. So first of all, the suffering, which leads us to be through with sin. We see that in verse 1. He is addressing the issue of suffering. Therefore, since Christ has suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves also with the same purpose. Because he who has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin. What is, uh, what is Peter getting at in these verses? There's suffering, and first of all, he's talking about the sufferings of Christ. Christ has suffered in the flesh. So first of all, there's the suffering of Christ. You know that Jesus Christ suffered uh, chiefly and primarily at the cross. And Peter has explained that in some of the fruit that comes from it. In, uh, in previous verses, in chapter 3, verse 18, if you look back just a page, for Christ also died for sins once for all, the just for the unjust, so that he might bring us to God. Christ suffered. He bore our sin. He received God's wrath in our place that we deserved. He suffered in his life, doing good for us as God's people. And as a result, we are brought to God. We are reconciled to him. We are forgiven of all of our sins. Christ suffered, and one of the fruits of his dying on the cross was that we are completely forgiven for all of our sins, past, present, and future. We are forever forgiven. But there is a second fruit that comes from the death of Christ on the cross, one that sometimes we uh, miss, and that is in chapter 2, verse 24, if you'll look back there. He himself bore our sins in his body on the cross so that, he might die, so that uh, we might die to sin and live to righteousness. Now, this is Christ's purpose in dying. He died for, with a purpose in mind that you and I would become his people, be united to him, and because we are united to him, we might be a people who die to sin and live to righteousness. And that is an important note as we come to 4 verse 1 when we read that the, uh, he who has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin. Or as I'm going to say in a moment, it, uh, to capture the sense, it might be better to say he who has suffered in the flesh is through with sin. We're done with it. We've had enough. We can no longer continue in it. But this uh, brings important perspective to know that Jesus Christ died in order that we might die to sin and live to righteousness, as he uh, describes here. Seized from sin, living, uh, not for the, uh, no longer for the lust of men, but for the will of God. Because what it helps us to see is that if we are, in fact, a people who have ceased from sin, 
we must acknowledge it is not anything that we have done. It is not a point of pride. It can never become for us a source of self-righteousness. It is not because we are better than other people that we have ceased from sin. It is not because we are more loving or more open to God, more spiritual or religious or moral than other people are, that we have ceased from sin in our lives. It's not because of what we have done that our lives are transformed. It is because of what Christ has done. Christ died, and as a result, we are now dying to sin and living to righteousness. It is to the glory of his name if it is true that, in fact, we are through with sin in our lives. It's not something we can boast in. We boast in Jesus Christ himself. So Jesus Christ died in order that we might be forgiven. He suffered also in order that we might die to sin and live uh, to righteousness. That's something that uh, Christ does in our lives. But it's important to remember as well that Jesus suffered throughout his entire life. He suffered all the things that Peter says his readers are suffering. There were, to be sure, times when Jesus was admired and appreciated. When he was doing miracles, or you know how he was received into Jerusalem. Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. But you also know that Jesus was mistreated in his life. You know that he was misunderstood. Those same crowds that were shouting, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. A week later were saying, crucify him. And when they beheld him dying on the cross, they said they uh, observed him and considered him to be one who got what he deserved. Jesus was mistreated. He was maligned. He was slandered as an evildoer. You know, he is a drunkard and a lover of sinners. He uh, hangs out with sinners. He was accused of working miracles by the power of Satan, when in point of fact, he was working miracles by the Spirit of God. Jesus was uh, mocked and maligned. He was spat upon. He was beaten. He was flogged and ultimately put on a cross, and he suffered the wrath of God in our place. Now, that's important, what Peter is saying when he says, Christ also suffered. If you want to know, arm yourselves with this perspective. Arm yourselves with Christ. As it was for him in this world, so it will be for you. Jesus is the pattern that you're li- and the mold to which you are being conformed. And that uh, offers us perspective on uh, the second half of verse 4 when we read that because, uh, uh, because he who has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin. So there's Christ's sufferings, but we also have suffered. And what Peter says here is very interesting because he doesn't use the present tense. He doesn't say, the one who is presently suffering is sanctified by it. You know, that's sort of a, there's truth in it. We go through hard times, it gives us perspective, it's a sanctifying experience. But that's not exactly what Peter has in mind. He uses not a present tense, the one who is presently suffering is being sanctified by it so as to be uh, ceased from sinning. That's not really his point. He says, Though, uh, he speaks of one who has suffered in some definitive way in the past. It's a past tense. And what we are to understand is once we were going along, living happily in sin, the world appreciated, we went with the flow, and we ca- were caught up in the same things that the world is, and there was no problem. We didn't encounter any hardship. We didn't encounter any slander. Uh, the world owned us as one of its own. We belonged, we fit in. And then what happened is Christ came into our lives. And because, not because, you know, we were such good people and we made a profound change in our lives, we turned a new leaf and decided to honor the Lord, but because Christ died for us and because of the fruit of that, that we now live for God, 
Because of the things that God is doing in our hearts and our lives, we now no longer run in the same excesses of dissipation others do, and we are slandered as a result. So we have suffered in the past when we were united to Christ as the suffering servant. And Peter's spoken in that way. If you look back at chapter 2, verse 21, you remember in this section he is talking to servants, and he says, look, servants, do good even when your masters mistreat you. Your calling as believers, as my people in the world, is to do good in hard places. Even when you are so far from being appreciated, you are actually mistreated as a result. Continue to do good. And then he says in chapter 2, verse 21, for to this you have been called to do good, even though you suffer, even if you suffer as a result of it. He goes on, since Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example for you to follow in his steps. And you remember that Peter is saying something stronger than merely uh, an example, an inspiring example. The word he uses is is more like we might say a mold. Your life, as a result of God's work in you, you are being shaped and fashioned and conformed to you're receiving a particular shape. And the shape that you are receiving, the mold to which your heart and life is being conformed, is that of the suffering servant. And for that reason, Peter is trying to communicate, if Christ came into the world and he did good and he suffered as a result of it, opposed in all these various ways, now that you are conformed to him and becoming like him, you should not be surprised if your life involves suffering in the course of trying to do good as well. As it was for Jesus, so it will is and will be for you in this life you will find it to be difficult. In one sense, he is saying, you have suffered in the past, you have suffered by being united to Christ, and all these changes, your life was once so simple. You went with the flow, and life was, it was simple. But now that the Christ is working in your heart and in your life, bringing sin to nothing in you, it's difficult. You encounter all this, the suffering started the moment you were conformed to Christ as a suffering servant. But Peter wants you to know that if it was that way for Christ, it will be that way for you as well. Do we, as the servants of Christ, expect a warmer welcome than Christ himself did? The world did not exactly roll out the red carpet to receive Christ. But he came to his own, and his own did not receive him. He came to the world that he had made. He made the world. They did not praise him for following God's ways and honoring the Lord. Instead, ultimately, the world put Christ on a cross. If they, if Christ, our Savior, was not warmly welcomed, we should not expect that in this life we will always be warmly welcomed and praised and admired when we stop our life of sinful self-obsession, drinking and carousing and, and so forth, and we begin to honor the Lord, we should not expect to be admired for it. So Peter goes on to talk about the slander that uh, a life uh, living for the Lord sometimes provokes. And I say sometimes because Peter does acknowledge that it's not always that way. You know, there are times when people admire you. You know, the world sometimes admires Christians. It really is a beautiful life of sacrificial service for others. They see your love, your hard work, your dedication, and sometimes it's very much appreciated. In fact, in chapter 3, uh, or chapter, yeah, 3, verse 13, he sa- uh, Peter says, Who is there to harm you if you prove zealous for what is good? If you do good work, do good in this life, oftentimes people admire you, and it will go well for you. You will avoid a lot of difficulty by doing what is right. But he also acknowledges that sometimes when you do right, it provokes the slander, uh, slander from other people. 
Let's first talk about how we are through with sin and what that means, and then how sometimes it provokes slander. Peter says we are through with sin, and you know, and your own, from your own personal experience as a Christian, that when he says you have ceased from sin or you are through with sin, he is not saying that you are now morally perfect. You're done with sin. You've ceased from it. Sin is a thing of, of the past for you. That's not what Peter means. Scripture is clear. If anyone uh, says that they have no sin, they deny the Lord and they make God out to be a liar. All of us have sin, even us as Christians. So what does he mean when he says we have ceased from sin? There is some defining moment which uh, comes about in the life of every believer where there is a fundamental turning point. In God's work of salvation, when we unite us to Christ, there's always a turning point at which uh, the things that we used to once to, you know, found so much pleasure in, now, mysteriously, more and more, somehow turn to ash in our mouths. We used to go on. We used to go to the drinking parties and participate in the sensuality and the lust and the drinking parties and all the rest, and we didn't really bother us. I suppose if we had stopped to uh, think about whether this was right to carry on in this way, we might have thought about it. But the thing is, we lived comfortably in sin. But when Christ redeems us, something uh, changes. And from that time forward, we are through with sin. Many people have experienced it and the practical changes that it brings about in their lives. Many of you uh, know that I have a uh, sister who rebelled in high school and how the Lord used that in my life. Uh, When I was uh, young, growing up in in, uh, high school, I was on a course of sensuality, lust, drunkenness, carousing. Not quite drunkenness yet. We didn't have access to alcohol. But that was more for the lack of the occasion than anything else. I was Christian. I grew up in a Christian home. But I was also on a course parallel. There was sin in my life. And some of you remember, as, since I've shared it in the past, how I came out and my sister had run away from home. She had hardened her heart and rebelled. And my parents were broken at the table. And in their tears, I saw the awful destructiveness of sin. And a lot of the things that I had heard through God's word came home and were pressed to my heart. Sin is awful. It is so destructive. And it, had, oh, it opened my eyes because, as I said, I was on the same course. I just hadn't gotten there yet. Yet the Lord used that to press these things home to my heart. And from that moment forward, when I saw my parents broken, and I saw the, I tasted the bitter fruit, the awful destructiveness of sin, from that moment forward, I was through with sin. I wish I could say that I never sinned again. Fortunately, it hasn't gone that way. But something happened. It was a defining moment. There was a decisive turn. I want to ask you today if you have experienced that decisive turning in your heart and in your life so that you can say it really is true of you in Christ. You are now finished with sin. It's done. It's done for you. You can no longer continue comfortably to live in it. And I want you to know today as I ask that question that there is good news. Christ is a great Savior. If you hear that question say, well, I've never really had a defining moment and set myself against a life of sin and to live for the will of God. Christ is a great Savior, and he offers. He is more than able to turn your life around. And I pray that he would do that today. But you may be a Christian like I was growing up uh, a Christian and yet wandering in sin. I want you to know there's good news for that sin, you know, the sin in our lives that are habitual for us, and we keep struggling with, and we keep failing in that area. And sometimes we're tempted to make, become complacent, make peace with sin in our lives. God, Christ, is able 
to renew the work he has begun in you and to cause it to proceed. And again, uh, later he says, let us be sober for the sake of prayer. And I would urge you, and as I do myself today, to pray that God would change our hearts, continue his good work, that we would be through with sin and be through with sin and be through with sin and fight sin all the days of our lives until at last we are rid of its presence forever in the new creation. Christ is a great Savior and he is able to work in you. But Peter wants us to know that sometimes uh, this is not appreciated by the world. Your friends and your family and the people around you, your peers, will not always praise you when you decide to quit sin in your life and to make changes. It used to be that there was sensuality, lust, drunkenness, and carousing, and now you don't participate in those things, and they're surprised, first of all. You used to run with us in these things. We had a great time together. Now you, suddenly you don't want to participate? And it results in slander, and you see how the progression uh, works, how it leads to slander. The thing is, good behavior sometimes has a way of calling bad behavior into question, whether you intend it to or not, whether you vocalize it or not. Imagine there is a party, everybody is going to it. All, you, you know, all your friends, all your peers, they're going to this party, and you know the things that are going to be happening at this party. Or maybe, as uh, sometimes happens, it's a business situation. There have been, you're in business, deals are being made, and they are going to a particular establishment afterwards for, for what is wrongly called entertainment, and you know that there will be sensuality, lust, drunkenness, carousing, drinking parties, and abominable idolatries. When you say, decline to go, you will not always be admired. Because the thing is, whether you vocalize it or not, what you're really saying, they perceive by the very fact that you are not going, they perceive that you are saying that what we're doing is wrong. You don't have to, you don't have to vocalize it. You don't have to put a word to it. They know, oh, you're not going for moral reasons. That, that's painful for them. They don't want to deal with it, and sometimes it leads, the way they deal with it is slander. Oh, you're holier than thou, aren't you? You're just better than everybody else. They begin to slander you in some way or another as an evildoer. Peter wants us to know that's going to be a regular part of our lives. As it was for Christ, so it will be for us. Our culture is uh, coarsening, and it may be that more and more, once Christian life, traditional Christian values, as it's sometimes said, will no longer be admired and appreciated. They will be demonized and slandered. Some have said that political correctness is a form of tyranny, which may be exercised increasingly against Christian values. It's not really against Christian values, it's, it's against the will of the Lord and what is pleasing and, and honorable to him. What we regard as beautiful, as wonderful, God's ways are so right and good, will increasingly be demonized as unhealthy, psychologically harmful to people. And it will be increasingly opposed. Arm yourselves, Peter is saying. This life that you are called to, doing good, it is doing good, according to the only standard of uh, that is available to us, God, it is good, but it will not always win you friends and the admiration of your peers. When we are suffering and when life has only become more difficult now that we are Christians and it's complicated because now we're not going to the parties like we once did, again, it's not any source of pride, it's because of what the things that God is doing in our lives. We can no longer go there as we once could so freely. We have tasted the bitterness of fruit. We are convicted. and We just can't go in those same ways, carrying on as we used to carry on because of what God is doing in our lives. 
and we encounter opposition as a result of it, what keeps us going? There is a sober perspective that Peter gives us that enables us to persevere and to keep walking with the Lord. First of all, concerning those who slander you. Now, Peter wants you to know that, uh, verse 5, they will give an account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. There are several implications of that. First of all, it is not your job and my job as believers to judge slanderers. Uh, that is sometimes tempting. When people slander you, it's easy to harden your heart, and you can become, you find yourself becoming self-righteous, hardened in your uh, position as a Christian, and opposed, and, and maybe in a certain sense, antagonistic to others. It's not your business to judge the living and the dead. They will give an account to God himself, and that sets you free. You don't have to bring them under judgment or correct them or make sure they know how wrong they are and what they're going to catch. God, that's God's business, is to bring judgment. It is not our business to bring judgment. Our hearts can remain soft, and they must. We must continue to seek to do good, even for those who oppose us. We must also do that knowing that God is ready to judge the living and the dead. That's a powerful word, the way that Peter puts it. It's like a horse chomping at the bit, and the only, there's only a, it's a very small thing which is restraining God. That, here's the point. God is not up in heaven, you know, to borrow the phrase from Nero. You know, Nero uh, played the fiddle while Rome burned. God is not up in heaven playing the fiddle while the world burns. He sees the things that are going on in his creation. He sees the way his people are suffering. He is deeply moved. He is chomping at the bit to come and bring the final reckoning the righting of all wrongs in his creation. He is not amused by the things that are happening in his world. And he will bring judgment. The only thing that is restraining him is God's own patience and mercy and grace. That is the only thing preventing God from immediately leaping into action. When all of God's people are saved, he will bring judgment. And that swiftly, he is ready. He has made himself ready. He is at the ready to bring judgment into the world. It's not our concern. Let us then have the perspective of Psalm 33. You know the psalmist, he says, my foot almost slipped when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. And then he says a few verses later, then it came to the temple and I beheld their end. Surely God has set them in a slippery place. It's not my job to oppose everyone who is opposing the will of the Lord. God has set them in a slippery place. So, first of all, that's concerning those who slander you. We can leave them, uh, entrust them to the Lord, and even seek their good. But he goes on to say, what about uh, concerning those who have died in uh, their lives as Christians? Verse 6, for the gospel has for this purpose been preached even to those who are dead, that though they are judged in the flesh as men, they may live in the spirit according to the will of God. In uh, Peter's second letter, he uh, addresses scoffers who are scoffing and saying, what good is this Christian life? What good is it for you to trust in Jesus Christ? Can't you see all, you suffer the way that we suffer, that everybody else suffers, and in fact, now that you're not you know, carrying on and participating in the community acts that involve sensuality and lust and drunkenness, the, fest, the community festivals, can't you see that now that you are refusing to participate, you're only, your life is only more difficult? So what have you got for trusting in Christ other than a lot of heartache and hardship, making difficulties even more difficult, and in the end, you die anyway? What good is it to trust in Jesus Christ? If this is all you get is a life of suffering. That's what Peter is addressing. What about those who have died as Christians? And he says, 
gospel that was preached to them. Notice it doesn't say it is preached to those who are now dead. It was preached to those who are now dead. During their lifetimes, they heard the gospel, they believed in Jesus Christ, so that even though the world condemned them and judged them according to human standards as failures, why would you give your life to Jesus Christ? You didn't experience the, the fulfillment, the fruitfulness, the wonder of just being able to get on with your life. Why? They were condemned, according to human standards for success, they were condemned as failures. But even though in their lives they may have been judged according to human standards as failures, yet they live in the spirit according to the will of God. I can't help but think of John 12, verse 50. This is God's commandment, eternal life. That though they were judged, God's ultimate word, God, you know, whatever humans may say in the meantime, God has the final word, and his final word for his people is life, eternal life. That though they are condemned by the world as failures, yet they are precious in God's sight. And they live in the spirit. By the way, uh, throughout this passage, when you read in the flesh, think in this life, and when you read in the spirit, think in the next life. It's a little bit simplistic, but that's a, a helpful thing that, to understand what he's saying. They were condemned in this life, yet in the next life they may live according to God's will uh, in the resurrection and live with the Lord even now. Finally, he says there's a sober perspective. The end of all things is near. I'm going to read that. It's only right and good for us, at, at least at first, to say, really? Peter, it's been going on for 2,000 years. The end is near? Didn't Jesus himself say that even the Son of Man doesn't know when the end is? How could Peter say the end is near then? Not only if not even Christ knows when the end is, what sense can Peter mean when he says the end is near? There's a little bit of a tension there. When he says the end is near, he does not necessarily mean in terms of time. We don't know when the end is near, so it could very well be near. It could be today or tonight or tomorrow. We don't know. God is ready to bring it at the appointed time. But we don't know. So it's not necessarily mean that it's near in terms of time. It's about to come any moment. We don't know when the time is. It could be. It could not be. It could go on for a while yet. The end is near, not in terms of time, but in a sense, if you will, in terms of space. Christ coming into the world and what Christ has done has brought the judgment of God near. There's a real sense when John the Baptist was right when he said the axe is already at the root of the tree. As it were, God has laid his axe there in a state of readiness to cut the whole tree down in due time. But here's what Peter is saying. Because Christ has now accomplished God's salvation and accomplished the complete forgiveness of the, all the sins of all of God's people, there is nothing left that stands in the way of God immediately bringing judgment. Nothing stands in his way other than his own patience and forbearance. That wasn't always true. Before Christ came, sin still had to be paid for. But now sin is paid for. Therefore, the coming of Christ has thrown the entire world into a state of crisis. Judgment can come at any time. The, fi the final end is near. It might help you to imagine a chess game. There comes a time when both players know that the checkmate is only a matter of time. There may be more moves. There may be a lot of moves left, but both players know that checkmate is inevitable, giving the pieces that are now in play. That's the way it is. That's our, now our situation. We've crossed a line in history. 
There's now nothing else. Given the pieces that are played, given that Christ has already paid for sin, given that he is already at the right hand of God, there's nothing left. Checkmate is inevitable. Satan has already lost a decisive victory. The kingdom of darkness is going down. It is only a matter of time. We don't know how much time, don't know how many more uh, moves are left in the game. We know the end is near. Many people have uh, found benefit by thinking of D-Day. D-Day was a decisive victory during World War II, and after that time, everybody knew Germany was going to lose the war. There was still suffering. There was still a lot of activity. There was still danger to be faced, but the end of Germany was near. They were going to lose the war, and everybody knew it. It was just a matter of time. That is the condition in which we live. Satan and the kingdom of darkness are going to be brought under judgment. It's only a matter of time, and in that sense, the end is near. There is nothing standing in the way for God to bring full and complete judgment when he wants to. So arm yourselves with the knowledge of Christ. So we conclude, uh, he means that in several ways. First of all, will your life as a Christian be easy? Let Christ be your guide. It wasn't easy, his time in this life, and it won't be easy for you as well. He suffered in the course of his life, during his life on earth. And now that you're united to him, you will suffer in various ways yourselves. Arm yourselves, brace yourselves with the knowledge of Jesus Christ. And as you think about that, know that Christ suffered for you to bring you complete forgiveness and give you hope for the future. But it won't be easy, your life now. Will it be a life of casual sin? Let Christ be your guide. Christ lived his entire life putting away sin, and now that you are united to him and becoming like him, Yes, you will be conformed to a suffering servant, but you will also be conformed to the one who is sinless. And that is why, decisively, now that you are with Christ, and now that his salvation, his saving work has commenced in you, you are through with sin. It is through for you. There may be remaining vestiges, but it's only a matter of time. Christ was the sinless one, and you are being made like him. So yourselves be through with sin, and since you and I are powerless to do that ourselves, Pray, keep sober. Pray, uh, Peter says at the end of verse 7. Pray that God would accomplish his purposes for you, that he would make you someone that is increasingly resolute to fight sin and to live for the will of God. Christ knows it is not easy, and that's why he feeds us with good news. He feeds us with himself. As we come to the table today, he pledges you, he gives you his love. And he says to you and to me who in the course of this life suffer, he says, as it were, if union with me has brought you suffering, as assuredly it will if you belong to me. Know that with the suffering through me, I also give you joy and strength and grace. He feeds us and he sustains us. And that's what this meal represents. He sustains us. He is food for us as Christians as we live this life walking a very difficult road. You are here today, and uh, maybe you're coming to know Jesus Christ, but you uh, aren't quite sure what to make of him yet. We would ask you, just as, as a sign of courtesy and respect, that you would simply not participate today in the bread and the wine. Uh, rather, let the bread and the wine just uh, pass you by. The Lord uh, warns us that there are spiritual realities involved, and that if we eat and we drink the bread and the wine, we don't really trust Christ or see uh, you know, our need for Christ then we eat and drink judgment to ourselves. So that's why we had asked you just to simply let them uh, stand by until you know Christ. But if there's something that I could encourage you to think about today and to ponder uh, during this time, it would be this. Christ 
offers himself to you. And the life he offers is not an easy life, but it is a good life to be in his hands, to be covered in his blood. He offers that freely to you. Whatever your sin, whatever you're going through, whatever your hardship, he will give you hope and joy and forgiveness. And he offers that freely. Ponder that. For right now, Christ offers himself to you and calls you to put your trust in him that you might be saved. Elders, would you come forward and help distribute the bread and the wine?